Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that we've got a brand new podcast at 11FS. This week, we're going to be releasing our very first episode of the FinTech Marketing Podcast. Our CMO, Eric Fulweiler, has spoken to a number of industry-leading marketeers to deep dive into their ethos, methodology, and what they've been up to to make their brands really stand out from the crowd. Just search FinTech Marketing Podcast on your favorite podcast provider and listen to the preview, subscribe, and start tuning in from next week. From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you the financial world responds to coronavirus, the UK regulator is planning to delay non-critical activity, and Nationwide opens early to serve the vulnerable. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 411 of FinTech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Jason Bates. How's it going, Jason? Good, in a twilight world, weird, post-apocalyptic manner. I mean, all that aside, it's been really good weather, hasn't it? I think we should look on the bright side, quite frankly. Well, I mean, I I went for a walk with my son and my wife, like, in a park at lunchtime. I've seen more of them in the last few days, like, on a weekday than probably in the last, you know, few months on a weekday. So, um, so it is, I'm living, like, family life. <laughs> it's very, it is a very bizarre time, isn't it? And um, no doubt we'll get into uh, much more of that as uh, as the show goes on. But uh, I mean, one great thing that did happen last week on the run up to all of the the uh, uh, sort of self isolation was we won an award, which was pretty cool. So um, last week we managed to pick up uh, for the second year running, actually, the um, consultant of the year at the British Bank Awards, which was super cool. Me and you were there, Jay. It was a pretty good night, right? It was the last hurrah, wasn't it, before we uh, cloistered ourselves away it was i think the alcohol somehow sort of protected me from the uh, the virus which is good but uh, okay we'll move on as you guys might have picked up on this recording uh, as we have to now i think social distancing is the uh, the word that we're meant to be sort of using for this but uh, we're all dyed into this remotely so we're not going to be in the 11fs studio uh, thanks to everything that's happening from a coronavirus perspective so for everybody who's listening please bear with us alex will do his best with everything that's happening on the audio side of things but it won't be quite as crisp as usual as always though we are joined by some super awesome guests Making his FinTech Insider News debut, we have Alex Latham, the CMO at Chip. How's it going, Alex? Good, thank you. I'm bunkered down in Tooting, Southwest London, and uh, yeah, looking forward to, to chatting to you all. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, next up, we have Layla White, who is the CEO at Tech Passport. How's it going, Layla? All good, all good. Hunker down at home, but uh, with the added pressure of children. So interesting times ahead, but all good. <laughs> So if we get some classic kids running up in the background, yeah, this is going to be good fun. I'm half expecting my youngest to come running up with a worm, just saying. It's her favourite insect, apparently, or favorite, if that's the right word for you. Wonderful. I look forward <laughs> to that. And making a welcome return to the show, we have Charlotte Croswell, the CEO of Innovate Finance. How's it going, Charlotte? Hi, David. Many thanks. Uh, yes, same same here. Um, currently sitting and hiding in my bedroom, both from the, my daughter and my, uh, my, and my cat, who managed to walk across a video conference call earlier on my laptop um so apologies to the recipient there but um yeah home homeschooling and full-time working isn't uh, it's a whole new dynamic <laughs> it is it's uh, it's another th- few things to juggle in at the same time isn't it all right then guys let's get on with the show this week 
So first up, and probably no surprise, is a story over on The Guardian, which is governments and regulators around the world react to the coronavirus. So on Tuesday, we had the UK Chancellor Rishi uh, Sunak announce a £350 billion package to combat the economic effects of the illness. Afterwards, the UK finance uh, revealed how the finance package would apply to the country's mortgage holidays. Households can now delay payments without risking their credit scores. Uh, Interest will still accrue, however. However, in the US, the Office of Controller and Currency may loosen liquidity rules in the wake of this crisis. The move would allow banks to lend to riskier firms in the energy and travel sector as well. Uh, And on Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 3,000 points amid fears of coronavirus-induced recession. I mean, lots of money going into the system, which is, is good, I think, to see. But I mean, we should probably talk first about, I mean, how is this affecting everybody's business? Because, I mean, we're all we're all in this sector in one form or another. Um, I mean, how are you sort of uh, dealing with this, Alex? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's been strange times for Chip. Um, so a bit of background, uh, Chip helps people save money. Um, and in times like this, it's, uh, it's obviously never been more important to, to have a, a good stash away in a rainy day fund. Um, and yeah, we're... we're one of the lucky businesses, I guess, in a weird word that um, that we're seeing increased growth. We're seeing more users download Chip because of because of this uh, kind of catastrophe. I guess is the easiest way to put it. Um, and we're seeing more people kind of set up Chip goals for rainy day funds. More people setting up goals for safety net funds, um, which is quite shocking. But um, but at the same time, it's good that we can kind of help them in any way we can. So that's kind of what we're seeing on on, on the moment at Chip HQ. Yeah. Mm. How about you, Charlotte? Obviously, I'm sure a lot of the the people you're working with are uh, sort of quite concerned of, at the the period of the junction that we're in. But um, how has uh, the people you've been working with responded? Um, yeah, I mean, we've been reaching out across the fintech community, obviously, um, to to members, but also to regulators and governments. Um, you know, I think the 350 billion fund is is one thing. Uh, getting it to the appropriate businesses is actually uh, not as easy as it sounds, obviously. And uh, you know, we think we have to look at the role of fintech companies in assisting in that. Um, some of those are lenders themselves, um, but also some have distribution channels. So most of our week this week has been really focusing on that core issue. The other one we're you know, acutely aware of are vulnerable customers um, and you know and how they're going to approach this new new learning of digital, you know, the digital age, um, potentially you know, having real challenges there. You know, I think we have to remember you know, in this country there's 16 million adults who have less than £100 in their account. Um, so we can talk about you know, funding businesses, but this is having a real hit already this week on uh, on people around the country, and you know, and that's you know something we are also looking at the role of fintech in helping on that. Yeah, it's it's a difficult difficult thing. I mean, the the announcement of the three hundred fifty billion pound package also came with the advice that from Monday people can walk into a branch and go in. But I'm like, literally, we don't want to walk into a branch. Like they, we're 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 told to stay away from people, but also walk into a branch to talk to a person. So there's a it's a difficult thing to sort of map those two things together, isn't it? Yeah, that's the real challenge. I think it's it's looking at that, and you know, a lot of people have embraced the digital age, but a lot of people haven't. Um, and you know, it's also also around the awareness campaign of this as well. You know, because it's one thing for us to to look at what the chancellor's saying. We're all involved in this industry, um, but you know, actually, when you talk about small businesses, restaurants, pubs, you know, we have to look at actually how they're going to do this and who's going to make them aware of the process and take them through step by step. And some, yes, will appreciate the loan, and I think it's it's great to see the rescue package. But also many of them won't be able to afford to pay that back because they're living day by day already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Jay? 
Well, it's, it's affecting so many people in so many different ways. I mean, you've got the big banks who are now looking at people who are going to be pulling on their credit lines. Can they? Can people pay mortgages back? Can they pay loans back? Can they pay their credit card bill this this week? You know, you've got normal sized businesses uh, or you know businesses that make a profit uh, that are now looking at well is our is our work and our uh, pipeline of clients and customers going to um, going to dry up especially in the leisure industry especially in the travel industry and then the knock on effect of that um, and then you've got startups and and if they who are quite often raise money in order to burn it over a period of time and if if they're lucky enough just to have raised they're super happy because actually more talent will be available. They're, they're a little bit insulated from the economy. So they'll just be going full steam ahead. Meanwhile, if people haven't raised and and this was the point at which they were starting to look and maybe looking to raise the next three or four months, then times are going to get really tough. And whether the, like the 2008 crisis, like 2001, suddenly uh, VC money dries up because the people who who are investing via via VCs now want their emergency fund to keep money closer to home. That leads to all kinds of interesting questions. So I think whether you're a, a small business, a startup business, a big business, you've got such a wide variety of problems. And the government's having to look at this to say, well, look, we need to kind of keep things going on. If this is a um, a three-month problem, then how do we keep things going so that everyone's not laid off and suddenly we have this, uh, you know, this cascade of issues that then really does take down the economy in some kind of way? Mm, I think that's the scary thing, isn't it? Is that the, uh, I mean, the virus might just be the beginning of the problem, essentially, because the the thing that will really sort of stall all of the, both from a personal and from a business perspective, is going to be the economy stopping. Um, you know, we've seen this movie before to a certain degree, but um, this one could be um, a lot more, uh, a lot more impactful. How's it going over at, uh, at your place, Layla? How's the uh, how's the, the the life sort of looking? I mean, it's a difficult thing for a startup at any scale, isn't it? But uh, in these times, it's particularly difficult. Absolutely, um, and and we are a startup ourselves. Um, so the challenges that we face this week, I'm quarantined because I have a cold, um, but I have to be um, aware of the fact that I need to be at home, and my children now have to be at home. Um, but Debbie, who works for us, and we're only a small team, six or seven part time. Um, and Debbie, who works for us, has got coronavirus, so she's been ill for the past week. So it's had. Um, of course, you'd expect a knock-on effect on us being able to deliver. Um, I think the key message is really being able to adapt as much as possible and be able to accept that there are some things that are just outside of your control. Um, and it's um, it's not the easier things to sort of try and relax on. But, you know, for example, for us this week, we had intended to launch our product this week with Debbie out of the picture and me not being able to take meetings or to face-to-face with some meetings, um, we've just had to accept we're going to delay. We're going to be pushed back by a week um, and we'll go next week. But from a, a startup perspective, I think, Jason, you touched on a really good point. Um, you know, we we are lucky we're in a position we've got funds, but there's a finite amount of money available. Um, so that will only go so far. So it's this constant worry that's obviously on my mind and probably other startups and other company sizes, you know, when when's that revenue going to come through? How am I going to interact and engage with um, potential customers if I can't meet them face to face? So it's a, a big um, issue, I think, that we're all facing. Um, and hopefully then 
you know, when we launch next week, <laughs> assuming assuming no one else comes down with the illness, um, it's certainly one that we look to try and and uh, and to try and help and solve with our ability to connect banks and suppliers. But um, yeah, it's challenging for for, mm-hmm. for everybody, I would say. I mean, it's interesting. I think everybody's attention is just going to be on this for a, a long period of time, really, isn't it? I think it's um, to your point, Jason, and actually to everybody's point as well, really. I, I mean, rightly so. You know, this is not just something that affects people's businesses, but it affects everybody's families. You know, there are people fundamentally affected by this uh, in in real ways, aren't they? So, um, you know, I, I hope everybody listening is is well. You know, I hope uh, your families are well. And, uh, you know, uh, I think if anything, today, particularly is the the good signs we're seeing from China and Singapore uh, give hope that actually there's a sort of a, at least a light towards the end of the tunnel. Sorry, Leila. Yeah. And just on that point, I've been talking to uh, contacts that I have in Singapore. It's, it's interesting to get their perspective on how things have moved on, not just from a corona health perspective, but also from an economy perspective. Um, and two of my key contacts out there have said, you know, the shopping malls are starting to fill up again. Life is starting to move back. Um, but there's clearly um, uh, um, a distraction for banks at the moment. You know, a lot of the execs are focused on how do they make sure that their their resources, their companies are protected. So it's all corona focused and less so about spend. So it really is a tough time for for suppliers in this space, but with the hope that this will shift at some point and the faster the better, obviously. But it's just uh, it's just holding on to that point. Fingers crossed, Alex. Yeah, I think I think the thing that really <clears throat> kind of cons- concerns us about the crisis is, is about the kind of obviously the government have, have implemented or starting to implement the, the mortgage holiday breaks and then the credit card forbearance for three months as well. But the kind of the stress we're seeing from our customers' perspective is that if yes, they can't afford to pay their credit card bill, they have three months off. That's very nice, but they still got to live and they still got to survive and they still got to like, need money. Um, and if they can't afford to pay your credit card bill. They obviously still have expenses, so they're probably going to borrow more, get further into debt. And it's just what happens at the end of this cycle. I think that's what's really important from our perspective. Like, what is going to happen, kind of, what's the exit plan? I think the 350 billion package is a great entry plan, but what is what happens after that? And I think that's going to be a really interesting question over the next kind of six months. Mm. I mean, the um, yeah, the question is always distribution of funds, isn't it, in terms of how that works? I mean, moving probably on to our next story. I mean, there is going to be there's going to be a theme here, ladies and gentlemen. If you weren't expecting this, in terms of all of the uh, the stories kind of connecting in. So, uh, the next up we had uh, over on FT Advisors, we had the FCA releases coronavirus response. So, the regulator intends to delay non-critical activity and reschedule planned work, including all calls for input. Uh, it was also scaled back meetings with firms in order to put. A additional contingency plans in place. According to an FCA spokesperson, the agency is uh, contacting firms across sectors to understand their responses to coronavirus, ensuring they are taking the proper steps to prioritise the welfare of their staff and customers, as well as functioning of the markets. Charlotte, I think this backs up exactly what you're saying, really, about really the response of many of the the big players within this space has to be actually the welfare of the customers, right? That's right. And I think if if we look within the fintech sector, Obviously, these aren't these aren't firms that have you know, overseas teams that can suddenly you know take over. Your know, compliance teams may start to get stretched. You know, and we've been talking to some. You know, they haven't faced any issues yet. 
Um, but certainly are acutely aware of you know the problems of 300 person organizations suddenly moving to remote working um, you know and that's incredibly challenging and I know that's the same the same issues that some of the FS players um, are also facing you know call centers potentially moving to remote working as well so I think you know definitely um, well you know a good response to you know the consultation because I know there was huge concern about some of those feeling a bit overburdened with the work over the last two weeks as we saw the build up for this um, but it really is now looking at the resilience, looking at the business continuity, and also, you know, to a certain extent, looking for support. I think that's, you know, I think it's all very well to sit there and say, we're going to sit there and, and try to stop you know, adding more work to you. But also, what can we do, you know, as an industry ourselves, and we've been talking to consultancies about this, but also the regulators to say, you know, we're here to support you, and this is how we're going to do it. And I think that's also important. And that's mm. something we're pushing for at the moment. It's been it's been really interesting to see. I think with the banks, uh, I mean, having spoken to quite a few of them, and Charlotte, I'm sure you have as well. The the response in terms of how they've handled. I mean, banks are very good at putting in place disaster recovery sort of processes. So you know, running you know a a b c teams in multiple locations, and you know, really making sure that they're they're really set. You know, for a lot of people in banks, this is the thing that they've the, they've been planning for for quite a long period of time. But even I mean, speaking to uh, people that some of the larger fintechs they've deployed very similar strategies which is i mean it's good to see that uh you know continuity of business is something that actually when they're providing critical services to to the to the public is is being maintained i mean you know and i think you know, and yeah you know, just to finish off on that i think you know, we we certainly you know, believe that that's you know, that's something that's manageable now you know, I think we have to look at what the long-term aspect of that is and what Leila was saying about, you know, potential product launches being put on hold as well. Because a lot of these businesses are fast growing, aggressively growing and looking to scale internationally. Um, so even for those that are well-funded, you know, what's that, that going to have the impact on their business over the next few months as well? Yeah. Jason? I guess it's been interesting to see how quickly some of the fintechs uh, have shifted to this way of working, enabled by cloud-based systems and you know, and an approach which uh, which uh, has always allowed them to uh, to have great disaster recovery against a building disappearing or you know this kind of thing because they've been built in the cloud uh, and actually a fair few of them have been running customer services uh, sort of operations uh, with. with workforces that are at home anyway so so i think that's been quite um interesting when where you've got uh some of the big challenger banks and fs players uh in the fintech space that have probably had an easier time than than banks who have to you know have bloomberg terminals and a specific office with an isdn line that carries data to this data center suddenly that gets a lot more difficult to um to manage than a a modern team with modern technology I think it's. Um, I think was your point earlier on, Charlotte. Actually, the the point around uh, distributed workforce when it comes to call centres is actually quite difficult to do those things given the access of really sort of critical information and everything that goes with it. But I mean, it is it is interesting. We're going to have to move increasingly. You know, this is something that's not going to change over the next week, is it? So you know, distributed workforces of of all types are going to have to be there. Yeah, I mean, it's been incredible. You uh, say how many have responded so quickly on this. Um, and also, we already this week we're seeing a slight trend of some of the bigger players looking at their longer-term plans for digitalization and innovation, and that's starting already. Recognizing that's going to take several months to put in place. So you, know, 
I think in terms of the fintech community, you, we, we feel that fintech was born out of the financial crisis. Um, and, you know, I think it is now looking at that and saying, let's look to that fintech innovation and saying, how is that going to lead us out of this one? Mm. It's going to be interesting to see that, isn't it? I, I wonder if, um, I mean, exactly like say fintech and really digital banking, right? You know, digital banking for the banks wasn't a um, wasn't an investment that was about sort of dramatic experiential changes. It was cost reductions, taking people, taking paper out of processes, taking cost out uh, and risk. Um, so it might be. I wonder if we'll see a dramatic swing to something different or whether actually it's just the other side of the same coin. You know, uh, we we often say this, Jason, don't we? It's, uh, you know, doing it cheaper and doing it better are not mutually exclusive things. Right. So if you can hit that sweet spot between those two, then you're uh, you're onto something pretty good. But um, Alex, do you have a point on that? Yeah, just just about um, <clears throat> kind of the FCA and, and delayed projects that they're working and that we're kind of working on uh, at the moment with them um we've been very active in kind of in the open finance uh, debate which is like the continuum from open banking um which some would argue has been revolutionary some would not um but uh, but certainly kind of looking to open finance which has now been delayed for six months um off the back of covid19 um and the conversation with the fca certainly that we're having with them is much more focusing on kind of consumer trust and making sure that the customer service is up to scratch and really we're seeing them go into a lot of detail on, on social media to make sure our customers are happy and generally customers are happy as well so it's going to be an interesting time pivoting potentially away from kind of innovation back towards making sure the customers are happy and being treated fairly. But um, yeah, I'm sure we'll see what happens. And I guess uh, trying to look on the bright side again, one thing that has, I don't know, amused me, astounded me is the drive towards video conferencing with relatives who have no idea how it works. Like suddenly you're, you know, on a video call and your aunt or your grandmother or your mum is pointing the the, the uh, screen towards the you know ceiling so, you know is this on jason is this on um but but there's there's going to be value in um in people getting used to new technologies in suddenly getting into digital banking and into digital services because actually in order to stay connected with people that there's a need there so while we've seen the sort of digital shift move you know across the age groups over the last few years you know, if, if this goes on for a period of time, we're probably going to see a lot more people really getting a lot more into digital services. And we have sort of driven by the um, the natural uh, ebb and flow that we've seen of, you know, of the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it's going to change the context of it, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, like in normal times, you'd go into everybody's house. You know, like you'd go around Nana's house and you'd set it up for her. Now you're not allowed in a house, you know what I mean? So it's going to, you're literally going to have to, yeah, talk people through it through the window. It's going to be very difficult to set these things up, isn't it? So, but, sorry, Layla, you've got a point on that. No, just on that, it just made me laugh. I am, um, so my mother is 73. She'll kill me for telling anyone this. I mean, big trouble. But, and she has underlying health issues. So she is classified as you're not leaving the house. That's it. Um, but last weekend, I dropped um, one of our laptops. Uh, iPads over to her and I had to connect it all up from the other side of the window <laughs> Dettol spray it and then pass it through the letterbox it was crazy but you know it's a it's just adapting yeah some of these adaptions but yeah Jason is quite uh hits on the point about um how uh tools like zoom or you know video conferencing is going to become so prevalent over the next few months and and how lucky we are that we have it I mean it's it's uh it'll be very important I think 
Very true. All right, moving on. There's a story over on Finextra, which is, I mean, the Bank of England are not letting this slow them down. So they're seeking input on a digital currency. So the central bank is consulting both industry and public for the benefits and disadvantages of central bank digital currency. Um, so they, they were very quick to sort of say that this would not be a cryptocurrency, um, but actually it would be, uh, and its denominations would be pound sterling. So the BOV lists a several pros of digital currencies, such as its impact on e-commerce and the potential for improving cross-border payments. Uh, however, it also included several negative impacts, such as reduced ability for the banks to offer credit to consumers. I mean, this is super, super interesting. I mean, as a general point, um, I mean, Mark Carney increasingly much more up for quite dramatic change kind of on the uh, on the exit, I guess, from from sort of the Bank of England, um, you know, he's been a lot more vocal on really the the sort of opportunities, and I and I I think the the hope that I have is actually with uh, with Andrew Bailey coming over from the FCA, who obviously the FCA have been very innovative in terms of the ways that they've been uh, setting things out. Actually, that this this sort of narrative and and quite um, brave. Uh, views will continue to be taken forward. I mean, Charlotte, you're probably better placed than any of us to to sort of talk on this one. Yeah, what a first week in the job for for Andrew Bailey. I mean, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, as you said, you know, what we've seen you know with the Bank of England, you know, during Mark Carney's tenure, it's just an incredible you know look to the future of what's coming coming through. And we saw this obviously in the future of finance report that he did with Hugh Van Steenis and you know we had a lot of fintech companies around the table, you know, with them. Um, and this is just the next evolution. And everyone recognizes if you take us out to 2050, and that potentially is going to get accelerated a lot more on the back of what's happening now, we were gonna ha- we are gonna have some form of digital currency. Um, I think nobody would argue with that. It's just a matter of that when do we start that. And you know, what I've been so impressed you know, with is that just ability to talk to other central banks around the world, to talk to industry, to engage with what people think and have you know, a dedicated team looking at innovation, looking at fintech and its role within that. And you know, I think if we take a step back you know, from when I started in banking 25 years ago, quite unthinkable, really, you would have a central bank you know, bring that consultation to industry, asking for input and really putting that out there and then saying, you know, this is it, us trying to set our future but we don't want to do it on our own. We want to do it with industry input. So, you know, and you know, whether we're going to get slightly delayed or slightly accelerated on the back of what's happening at the moment. But, you know, I think we should take a step back and congratulate them for looking out to the future of what might happen. Yeah, I agree. Jason, what do you think? I think this is super interesting. I mean, ultimately, you might argue that the Bank of England already has digital currency because essentially all of the big banks Uh, have a settlement account at the Bank of England. And then when I send David money from Barclays to HSBC, like it's not an armoured car that kind of carries my cash over to David's bank. At some, you know, the... uh, Barclays and HSBC lump up all of the transactions that happen and eventually they're settled up in some ledger in the Bank of England. Essentially, there's a little move of a, a digit from this column into a little move of the digit in this column. And, and that's how Sterling's managed. So, but that's, um, they're, they're um, devolving, you know, they've devolved the, um, uh, the management of all of those payments down a level. They just handle what the banks send between each other. And ultimately, technology means actually they could step a couple of levels down. Like suddenly when I send money from me to David, 
that can actually happen in the Bank of England rather than in Barclays, in HSBC, and then get rolled up. Um, and that, that's, I think, what leads to the really interesting questions and the consequences and unintended consequences. Because on one hand, you might say, well, look, as a new fintech, as CHIP, um, if we don't have to pay lots of middlemen and we're directly interacting with payment systems and rails and the Bank of England, things get uh, arguably a lot cheaper and suddenly we're away. Or if in this financial crisis, I think, actually, I'm worried about my cash and whether you know whether a bank's going to fold because of the amount of loans they've made, actually, it's in the Bank of England. I'm pretty good, you know. I'm 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 sorted. But on the negative side, you know, banks are banks because they take deposits and lend them out. If those deposits are no longer sort of managed at the bank level, but at the Bank of England level, then there's then who's going to be doing the lending? So there's there's some really interesting structural questions as to, you know, if if the Bank of England stop going up a level and and argue that as a national utility they should be offering accounts and rails and and starting to move up, then there are some amazing positives, but also some questions about. What does that happen? What happens with funding? What happens with the creation of money and fractional reserve banking and all of those things? So, you know, they've seen Libra come along. They've seen other other people do it. This isn't about a crypto thing. This is about a platform thing. So at what level should the Bank of England, should the you know regulators be playing at a platform level all the way up to, you know, suddenly I'm making a fintech that sends money from me to you and I use a few APIs into a Bank of England, um, you know, account. And that gets super interesting. So I'm, you know, I'm going to be fascinated with the responses that come back because, you know, the big banks, I assume, will hate it. Some fintechs will love it. The crypto guys will get involved. You know, it, it could impact MasterCard, Visa, like everyone, just in terms of what what would a new platform be like for the the movement of money and also the policing of it. Because if actually, if you can see into accounts that move thing move money along at that level, then suddenly we've got um, you know, a whole different level of real-time regulation of the flow of money. So um, I think it, it's easy in this kind of thing to get lost in, oh, this is a, you know, Bitcoin cryptocurrency thing. It's really not. It's like, a, where does a bank, where does a central bank play? And what is the platform that they're providing to the industry? Uh, Alex? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Jason. I think it's super exciting. I think I think Sweden is the nearest country to, to implementing it at the moment with their, I think it's e-krona, which sounds weirdly like corona, but the e-krona. Um, but really interesting. I think Accenture is working um, with the Swedish government on that. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, I think from um, our perspective, yeah, the, I think technological possibilities are huge. Um, be it through kind of anti-money laundering perspective, like tax perspective, tax evasion perspective, it's going to be super interesting. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to seeing how that develops. I mean, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, if they're if they're implementing a digital currency, but not using, I mean, they've, they've been quick to say it's not cryptocurrency, but they haven't said specifically what type of technology they'd be looking at to deploy this. So if it wasn't a distributed ledger technology at this stage, given the reason why it was set up in the first place it would it would say a lot for that wouldn't it but i mean it, it is quite a bizarre one jason like you say because it at a settlement level it could be tran- completely transformational couldn't it Leila, have you got a point on that yeah just um i agree with all your points i think it's interesting and exciting um 
it'd be really interesting to see how it affects the fintech market from a supplier perspective. So obviously there are um, small banks or small fintechs out there that offer um, credit as part of its service. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out and what does that mean for those small companies? Um, you know, not just the big players, the big banks, but the, the smaller companies and, and what that will do to the industry. And challenging times like this, it's um, uh, it's probably just driving more uncertainty for, for those companies, but exciting for others. Well, I think the... Um... Uh, I think the Bank of England put this out pre-crisis. And from what I understand, they were asking for a lot of responses now. But that window has been massively extended. Uh, we know this because actually we we put a response in. We had um, Adam, who was working on the thing till late at night up to the deadline. And then basically they said, oh, yes, you know, the window's off in the distance now. So, um, uh, you know, we're, the, we're that kid that's done their homework, even though everyone's got a six-month, you know, 12-month <laughs> extension. Uh, half happy, half like, come on. <laughs> well, once you've done your homework, you can kick back, right? So uh, uh, as would expect be expected, um, Simon Taylor from 11FS got all well and truly excited about this. So if you want to have a look at his views, head over to the 11FS blog where he's talked about why would the Bank of England actually be interested in putting this type of thing out there. All right, guys, uh, that brings us to the end of the first part of the show. We'll be back with you very shortly. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the U.S. market. Invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free with a fully digitized sign-up process. You'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com and search Stake Trade to seize the U.S. market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Here at 11FS, we deliver work all over the globe, from North America through to Europe, to the Middle East, South Africa, and across APAC. We've helped clients deliver truly digital propositions. If you head over to 11FS.com and click the Work tab, we've got some brand new case studies showing all of the good stuff that we've been up to. There have been interesting stuff there for people like RBS, Virgin Money, Grab, and Atom Bank, to name a few. Head over to 11FS website and have a look today, or you can drop us an email over on Hello at 11fs.com. All right, back on with the news. So to another story that was over on American Banker. So this is the FDIC approves Square Loan Charter. Uh, finally, back to some fintech news. Hey, let's uh, let's get into the fun bits now. So the San Francisco fintech has applied for an industrial loan charter application. It hopes to use the charter to provide commercial loans to its payments customers. Uh, Nelnet, a student loan servicer, also received approval in this decision. Uh, this marks the first time that the FDIC has said yes to an ILC application since 2008. So it's a very big deal. And for, for Square as well to, to be one of the companies that have been approved for this is, is a really big step. Um, I mean, Square have been doing some really interesting, sort of quietly going about their their business. Uh, I mean, on some of the terminal stuff that they've been doing has been pretty, pretty impressive. But to come out the gate now with a charter to be able to do commercial loans in a major way, Jason, this is a pretty, pretty big step for them. 
Yeah, uh, but I actually think it's bigger for the industry than it is for Square, because in all of these sort of licensing approaches, especially when something's changed, actually you look for the first person to go through, and then they're the benchmark. And all of a sudden, Square will be getting lots of uh, calls from every fintech and VC saying, talk us through, like, what's the process? How does it work? And because they've said yes to Square, they're going to have to say yes to other people in in a similar vein. So this um, is that smoke test is actually pushes something through a licensing process. And we know, you know, from our work in the States that the, the state and the federal regulator and how do fintechs really fit in and how can they get charters? You know, there's been this moat around financial services in the US that arguably this is one of the first, you know, the first big players across. So I think it's great for Square and they're, you know, across the moat and going to be making hay while the sun shines. But the, 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 all of the other players are now looking at this to say, great, okay, we're going to cross at the same point. Mm. Well, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw Varo Money get a, a license, didn't we? But I mean, exactly as you say, really, you know, the minute that uh, the sort of the Monzos and the Starlings of, and of the world sort of started to get licenses in the UK, very much, uh, not only did it spell that this wasn't just like a, a fad that would go away, but but equally the the big banks, there was pressure on them to actually, you know, respond to this and step up their game, right? So, I mean, it's an interesting to want to see what the, the big organizations will have to do now. Jake? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in right at the start when, uh, you know, Monzo Starling were going through, uh, Tandem had already got their license. You know, the big question was, like, how long does this take? How difficult is it? You know, what do you have to do? And once someone had been through to be able to go and talk to Tandem and say, you know, talk us through the process. Suddenly it was, you know, is it going to be a six-month thing or is it going to be a 24-month thing or somewhere in between? Suddenly there was there was someone who'd been through it who could, you know, who could talk you through it. And there are also then providers and, you know, advisors um, who had worked with particular players in getting through. So suddenly, you know, there's a process and, and once one or two players have been through, it really does open the gates. So I think it's, you know, it's exciting times there. Um, you know, the, I think the US is going to be hit uh, massively by the coronavirus, but I, I'm hoping that, uh, that the fintechs, um, especially those with funding, will be able to to start using this as a um, uh, it, to benefit them in in uh, attacking that market. Oh man, we nearly got a story story without talking about coronavirus, didn't we? There's going to be one of them, I'm pretty sure. Um, Alex, what do you think about this? Um, you know, really, the the regulatory system in the US has been quite slow, I think, in terms of this. But you know, two in two months, that's uh, it's momentum, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and sorry to bring it back to coronavirus, but uh, but it will be interesting to see how that does affect this launch. Um, I think as well, bringing it back to what we were saying earlier about the FCA specifically in the UK um, and, and, and kind of where re- regulatory framework fits within the next six months is all going to be dictated about what the economy looks like in six months' time. And, uh, and certainly kind of from our perspective going forwards, um, luckily, breaking news on Fintech Insider, we got regulated last week. Um, so luckily, we're, we're kind of past that. But um, in terms of kind of more innovative um, regulatory uh, stuff that's going on, I think it really does depend on what the next six months look like from an from a economy perspective. Congratulations. That's uh, great news. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, what, what do you think, Charlotte? Because I mean, if uh, if the market does something similar in the US to what happened in the UK, I mean, this could spell quite a, a dramatic change of tact for the big banks over there, I guess. 
Yes, and I think you know the US has always been a much more complex market in financial services, you know, mostly due to regulation. You know, as we see some of our fintech companies incubating here, looking to scale in the US and really push the boundaries. I think we are going to see that escalation of innovation, um, especially on you know in the back of what's happened with COVID nineteen. So you. Know, it's been interesting in our time with SVC community of how many are looking to the UK for the innovation that's going to come across to the US. How many sovereign wealth funds are looking to put money into UK funds and UK companies because they feel feel they can scale them from the UK. I mean that's you know incredibly you know incredible compared to where we were in the tech days back in back in the nineties. Is sitting there seeing us create some of those cutting edge um, you know products and technology that can you know, literally be scaled across the world. So I think, you know, anything like this that eases this regulatory burden as well, you know, I'm sure there will be plenty of UK companies looking at that um, and moving that forward. And, you know, this is what fintech companies should be doing is, you know, they start with one small product, they grow it, they you know work on their customer acquisition strategy. And we're starting to see this now with some of the other ones, you know, as they start to scale into other areas, they embed in every part of finance and we're going to see these, you know, these pieces there. So congratulations to Square. We we, we work with them and uh, it's great for them and uh, but great generally for innovation in the US market. Mm. I mean, Jack Dorsey uh, has been, you know, co, co-CEO of two major companies for a period of time. You know, one goes quiet for a little while while he focuses on the other and then he comes back and stokes that flame. I mean, he uh, seemingly can't do any wrong at the moment. So uh, let's see uh, see what he does next. Um, one of those UK companies, as you're saying, Charlotte, is going from strength to strength on our next story. So this is over on AltFi. This is Monzo enters into the SME space. Uh, so the challenger is now offering two business current accounts. The first is a free account dubbed Business Lite. Uh, in its standard business account with receipt scanning and web access. The other account is called Business Pro and costs £5 a month. Its features pots uh, automatically directing money for taxes, invoicing, multi-user accounts, and a bunch of other different features that's there. So Monzo has been testing these accounts for over a year. The company has also partnered with Zero to offer Business Pro customers six months of accounting software for free. So, I mean, this is a really interesting one because, I mean, with all of the things that have happened with the Remedies Fund, um, actually, Monzo just weren't in the mix for that at all. Um, and now they're coming out pretty strongly with uh, not only an account, but a one that actually can push them into uh, turning profit, I would have thought, on these accounts pretty quickly, given the, the charges that's there for it. So, I mean, the, I think this, if you look at any of the things that are on the Monzo community, it's been something that people have been crying out for for those guys for a, a really long time. And the fact that they've been testing it for such a long period, you think there's, there's probably quite a lot of pent-up demand. But, I mean, bizarrely, I mean, coronavirus aside, SMEs in the UK are better served than ever, potentially, given, you know, we've got Tide and Starling and Monzo now really sort of pushing to to give people sort of unique propositions. But what do you guys think to this one? Is this um, is this a, another person coming to the market that you think would be successful for SMEs? Yeah, I, I think this is going to be huge for Monzo. Um, I, I think... Especially if you look at kind of what happened with their with their premium offering, um, I think it was last year, maybe the year before last year. Um, obviously, it didn't go too well. I think putting my marketing hat on for a second, I think what they've done really beautifully with the, the business account is it looks like a status symbol. It genuinely looks like a status symbol. It looks the card looks like the embodiment of what entrepreneurship is all about, and that is really what they've absolutely nailed. Um, if you look at what their premium offering last year, something I think they failed on is is kind of the democratization of, of what it could be. So they gave people too many options, too many cards, let them pick what they wanted. 
people want one thing and they want to aspire to have that one thing. I think from a marketing perspective, absolutely nailed it with the design. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be a huge moneymaker for them as well. So congrats to the Monzo team. I mean, it's going to be super interesting to see how this how this goes. But I mean, initial reaction uh, is so they've had about two and a half thousand of these out in the wild. Uh, but from the ones that we've seen using it, it sounds like they're a very satisfied with the product that they've got which i mean to your point charlotte earlier on this is uh you know 101 fintech right you know find a small community work with them to shape the product and then look at rapidly scaling it off the back of the success of that right i mean yeah i certainly think the, if we look at since you said those those names who are going into business banking you know why are so many of them doing that quite rapidly and you starting as well spending a lot of a lot of advertising you know, this year on business banking as well is that's because there is d- desperate <laughs> a demand for this um you know and uh, you know and you they, they know their market they scope it out well you know we don't see monzo doing a lot of advertising or anything else they have their core market and they know where they're going and uh, you know great for them to to pursue this you know and again you know, you look at that and what we're going through at the moment this race to digitalization you know people are going to want to be able to be able to facilitate everything digitally and it's absolutely crucial time you know for those neobanks challenger banks to come into this and offer those services i mean you know and i hate to say it you know it's um it's not a great time for the for um the global ecosystem at the moment but a great time to have this offering out in the market Hmm. i mean there's a quote from tom uh blomfield on on this one who's the ceo uh, over at monzo so we've heard how difficult it is to find business accounts that delivers what businesses actually need uh, and i've also heard over and over and over again that it takes days and even weeks to get an account up and running um i mean this is this is just a basic hygiene problem sometimes of just getting an account in the first place um leila how did you guys find it when you were sort of getting going and what was your experience um, mine was um, awful, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. And, and I actually fed back to some of my colleagues at uh, a previous bank that I used to work at um, and uh, said it took weeks. It took so long to to get an account and everything was paper-based still. And I think I remember um, applying for online banking but I had to apply for tele- telephone banking as well separately. It was just archaic. Um, and then fast forward a couple of months and I really didn't get on with the app at all. Um, and I actually looked at uh, um, Revolut. Uh, was that Revolut? I can't remember my, my uh, Debbie who's handling this. But it, w- it went through in a matter of hours. It was so refreshing and so different. Um, and that's how it should be. And I think it's um, this is a turning point really for banks that they, there's a need to really digitalise and really step up and look at how these smaller banks are able to really affect the markets. Um, and with, you know, Monzo coming into this space, it's um, it's more pressure on the big banks to adapt because smaller companies like myself who have limited amount of time to be spending looking at their accounts and tracking things um, are going to opt for the likes of Monzo, you know, and, and offering a package of six months free for zero, it's great. It's a great package. It's great timing. Um, and this is really what the, the SMEs or startups or small companies are looking for. It's the um, it's the speed to connect, the speed to set things up, the um, the agileness of, of the technology um, and all of the great packages that um, a lot of these banks are starting to offer, you know, 20% with this company, 10% with this company. It all adds up. And from a, a startup's perspective, that's so invaluable. I mean, it's a great move from Monzo, but it's a really great move from Zero as well, Jason, because, uh, I mean, Gary and the guys over there have always been pretty smart on how to get distribution working, either through accountants. But now, actually, if they can use, uh, you know, challenger banks to start doing their distribution for them as well, that's a pretty smart move, right? 
Yeah, I mean, hey, we've been uh, pushing the the virtues of business banking, small business banking for a few years now. It was definitely the, you know, the new battleground, predominantly because just as, as people have said, it started off from a very low base. You know, effectively, you were getting a glorified retail account that you were paying for, that it took an inordinate amount of time to uh, to arrange. And then what did it give you? You know, one uh, one account holder or a couple of account holders that could see everything uh, across a single account with, you know, one currency. And actually, if, you know, if, well, we know uh, uh, as you start to grow, you really want to start delegating some of that off. And it's very difficult to do when you've got one account and you can see the entire balance and every payment. Um, so there are lots of, um, of issues with running that business from basically a um, you know, glorified retail account, throw in making tax digital, throw in digital accounting, throw in the fact that this is you know, cash accounting is not cash accounting. You've got invoices and bills and expenses and sales and lots of people. And that's that's just the perfect recipe to have, you know, to have truly digital banking in there rather than a glorified retail current account. So I think, you know, it, it is a the, the great space to be in. Arguably, it's it's less great now because of the IL35 changes. And so out of the, you know, 10 million plus small businesses, is it, some crazy number like you know six or seven million i'm making it up but a huge number of million of those were just one person contractor businesses 76 percent, i think it there was there you yeah. go so so there's almost, it's almost like you're going to lose those guys um so there's less of a market now than there arguably was at the time but even so you know moving up from sme to mid-market, to corporate and transaction banking. Actually, the, there's needs all the way up there. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, um, you know, whether this is just the the MVP, the MLP at a, for a small business, but actually business banking to, you know, to global uh, level uh, is really in need of, uh, of work. Well, at least the IR35 rules have been pushed back, so well, they've, exactly. got, they've got a bit of time. <laughs> they've got a year. Got a, yeah, they've got a year to news. figure all that stuff out. Anything can happen in a year. I mean, it, it is it is really interesting to see because I think to your to your to your point, Jason, like the beachhead for relatively small, uh, you know, small numbers of users within uh, a, a business and small levels of complexity within that business. But actually, I mean, arguably, you know, you start scaling up those startups to you know, two, three, four, five hundred people organizations, the complexity gets, you know, very significant very quickly, doesn't it? So it's it is going to be, I think over the next couple of years, the sort of acceleration of those development programs is gonna it's gonna be interesting again to see how the the big banks react to that. Because arguably the Monzo proposition and a high street bank proposition right now looks quite similar. You know, integration of zero, great, you know, you know, these things are there. Um, but arguably if they're gonna take the same approach of you know two three weeks to per release for interesting new functionality then the gap over the next 24 months are opening up between uh, high street banks in terms of what they offer to smes and the challenger banks with you know we've got uh, coconuts and you know tide and starling and monzo and revolu and all these guys it's a it's going to be a really really interesting space i mean I, I wonder if a lot of these players are able to start really bridging the gap you know between retail and commercial because you know arguably it's been one of the most um underutilized data sources between those two points because of all of the legacy systems that sort of sit in the back office but obviously 
you know where those guys are they can probably do so much more with that data but um i guess um you know time time will tell on this one and uh, we'll see where we get to all right. Next story that we have up is over on TechCrunch. Uh, it's been a bit of a busy week for Revolut on um, multiple fronts, really. So last week, the Challenger Bank announced that uh, paying users could now buy gold as part of their commodities feature. I mean, if you were feeling really apocalyptic and you just wanted to put all your money in gold, then now is your opportunity and Revolut is your bank. Um, specifically, they could buy exposure backed by real gold held by the London Bullion Market Association. Um, but then on Monday, Revolut CFO Dave McLean left his position only six months after coming in. Uh, so the loss comes after rumours circulated that the company is applying for its UK bank licence. Uh, but then on Wednesday, Revolut announced that it was launching a money management app that aims at financial literacy for kids aged 7 to 17. So it's been a bit of a busy day, a busy week over there in, uh, in, in Revolut, which is interesting. I mean, I think the the CFO one was probably a bit unfair to, to sort of bring up. But I mean, the gold one was quite an interesting one. Obviously, I mean, Revolut have been, you know, one of the first to be able to come out and buy cryptocurrency, I mean, well over 18 months ago now. So the fact that they've moved to, uh, you know, other sort of uh, commodities in that space is super interesting. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right. It really reminds me of when they launched the cryptocurrency. I think it's in 2017 now, cryptocurrency launched. But they did it, if you look at the timing of when they did it, they launched a cryptocurrency product exactly when the Bitcoin boom was happening. And now they seem to be launching the gold product exactly as gold prices soar. So <laughs> again, the timing seems to be pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's always been rumours amongst London fintechs of kind of Revolut's company culture um, for true... Or false, I don't know, but it will be interesting to see how it manifests itself in a work from home environment, uh, and and kind of how that that kind of more bullish culture of get it done, get shit done, really does uh, take off when everyone is working from home and uh, doesn't necessarily in the office working late hours. It will be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, look, we we know a lot of people who work over at Revolut. In fact, actually, at the British Banks Awards last week, we were there with uh, Chad and some of the guys from the Revolut team. I mean, I, I think um, I think it became quite fashionable to kind of have a go at Revolut for a period of time, and there was a there was a sort of a. Um, you know, a bit of a backlash against them in terms of what they were doing. But I mean, I, I always say, uh, you know, culture is down to the people who work there, you know, in the same way as Spotify's model worked because of the people that was there. Um, the model and the setup and the the processes that you build are based on the types of processes and types of people that you have in the place. So, I mean, those guys are relentless at delivery. Um, if anything, I think they're out delivering pretty much every everybody on the market. They're not just going into new geographies and going into new, uh, you know, fronts, but now gold and, you know, they've already done SME. They're doing retail in major ways. I think, you know, Australia has just announced its CEO and the US has just announced its CEO. So, I mean, whatever they're doing, it's sort of working at this stage. Charlotte, what do you think? Um, you know, and I think, as you said, you know, a lot of people look to Revolut and look to the culture. You know, I think, you know, from my perspective, you know, that seems to be changing quite aggressively at the moment. And, you know, we work a lot with the Revolut team. And you, you have to admire any fintech company, you know, or any tech company that can sit there and pivot and continue to add those products in 
you know, and continues to deliver you know the customer service there. So you know, I mean, you know, to to launch things, two things like that, um, you know, over the course of a week, which has been a hectic week for them, and I know that as they've moved everyone you know out of uh, out of the office, um, is quite incredible. You know, and uh, you know, we we do engage with them you know a lot, and you know, I have been impressed by you know the their you know their input into government and and public affairs as well you know, how they're approaching you know some of the issues that we're facing at the moment in terms of reaching some of these smes um as many of the fintech companies so you know, i think uh, let's uh, let's give them a bit of a cheer and say look you know, continue as you are and uh, maybe that work-life balance might uh, might come in there <laughs> what do you think jay uh i mean they're driving uh, new products along um, and have been for quite a long time. They are executors, you know, they make new things happen. Um, and I'm with um, Alex that they also seem to release things that that the market wants. You know, I, 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 have, I sometimes have questions of, are they just too opportunistic? Do people really want commodity trading and Bitcoin trading and all of this kind of thing with their everyday finance? But actually, like, you know, they're profitable things. The spread that they used to have on, um, you know, Bitcoin uh, transactions was huge and, and, you know, made them profitable. So, um, so uh, you know, in this, in this world of uh, fintechs building things as they go along and are they ever going to turn a profit, you know, Revolut really do come along and make that happen and release new products as they go. I mean, I, I think I did I see that they announced today that they're also doing a child's account, you know, um, a pocket money place. And you kind of think, well, suddenly go Henry Osper and all of those players are going to be a bit bit more worried if um, you know if, if Revolut's expanding like that. So I'm I'm fascinated by their drive to deliver, their drive to deliver profitable products that people want. I sometimes question the kind of coherence of the the kind of product strategy of where, of how it how it looks, but. You know, sometimes you just need to get out there and get millions of customers, billions of dollars of valuation and drive things that just work. And, uh, and I think they're, uh, you know, they do that. Yeah, I agree. Layla, what do you think? Yeah, they certainly feel like a, it's a bit of a catch-all environment with Revolut. And I, I do like Revolut. <laughs> when you look at all of the people, all the companies that they've partnered with, it's quite um, it, it's quite extensive. And then from a, an SME's perspective, the, the benefits you receive off the back of that are fantastic. Um, but I think to your point, Jason, it, it does feel like it's a very catch-all, like uh, if they target as many different markets and in any different opportunities as possible, they'll get they'll get something back, you know, they'll start to turn a profit. Um, I do find it interesting that they've launched the um, the account for children this week because um, I'm not sure, uh, Charlotte, how you feel, but my, my children won't be spending any money at the moment <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, financial literacy is uh, is as important in times of uh, of, of little as, as in times of uh, of much, right? So, I mean, I I think it's a very smart move. I think it's it, honestly on the the kids account thing. I I feel like um, this is a. I mean, Jason, we always talk about um, uh, you know um, underserved and overcharged, and actually, I mean, many of the players that you refer to with the Ospers or the Go Henrys, uh, in order to make them profitable, have to charge a annual you know, fee for these things. But actually for, for big banks, they've really underserved the, you know, kids and teenagers for such a long period of time because either um, either they just couldn't make money out of it or it didn't tip the PNL for this year. So, you know, for, for, for Revolut to look at um, the young age group to actually graduate into a full 
a full account. Well, they've got the full account that a you know eighteen year old would actually want, whereas actually a you know a HSBC or a Lloyd's probably wouldn't. So, I mean, it's it's I honestly think it's like we're we're starting to see Revolut play um, not just the short game on you know so. You know, commodities definitely, from a gold perspective, will make them money this year. But investing in an account for a seven-year-old will make them money in ten years. Like that's a they're playing the long and the short game. Well, well, I also think it makes money now, though. I mean, it's that classic unbundling and rebundling. You know, so we've suddenly got that old picture of the HSBC account with all the startups around the edge of how they're whittling away at small pieces. And Revolut was down there on the kind of FX travel card bit. But now we're seeing that actually, um, you know, are, are pocket money cards a feature or are they a business? You know, and ultimately... Revolut have been what been one of the players where they got their beachhead and now they're starting to rebundle. And actually by having a you know a pocket money card, it, it makes their everyday financial services story a lot stronger because suddenly we're into into family finance. You know, suddenly if I put my salary in here and pay bills from there and pay little Johnny's pocket money and be able to manage that, actually I want to do that from one place. I don't want to run three or four apps to do that thing. So I'm, you know, the thing we we talk to clients about, about these constellations of new services, about new centers of gravity around how these things start to get rebundled into a variety of sort of different mega businesses. You know, you want your everyday finance, but as you're going to the bus stop, are you really going to look at your mortgage and your ISAs and your, you know, pensions or whatever? No, no, that, that's kind of a separate constellation. So I'm really interested to see how um, how these things start to rebundle and how they do better, not because of just little Johnny in 20 years' time is going to bank with them, but actually it just makes Johnny's dad's life a bit easier rather than having to, you know, pay for Go Henry and do a lot of things at the same time. Agree. What do you think, Charlotte? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an active user of Go Henry, and uh, and also I did uh, have uh, one of the beta versions of Revolut Junior. Um, so generally, a big fan of of um, of the Junior cards, and you know, and just the incredible transparency you get as a parent, and it just makes me laugh. There's all these kids thinking they've got this freedom now, um, and actually, I can track <laughs> where she's been at any one time through Life 360. I can track every single <laughs> thing she spends. I can put a cap on her daily spend, her weekly spend. Trust me, it's it's just fantastic. So congratulations to all of them out there. But it's been interesting working with both of them because they've got behind our FinTech for Schools campaign on financial literacy and well-being. And actually, we're escalating that at the moment so we can get this out to kids um, to teach them about the value of money as they're sitting at home driving parents crazy. Um and you know, and it's not. This isn't just a marketing play. You know, this is actually you know people looking at you know their future customers. And Go Henry's, you know, Go Henry's case, they're making a business of you know of servicing the children. The functionality is amazing, and some of the economy youth economy report that they bring out on the pocket money gap is just you know mind blowing. And you know, and then you know, Revolut's looking at it as their future generation. And you know, if you go and get a customer in at fourteen, we all know how loyal we were to our you know to our first bank for many years. You know, it's a really, really smart move. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah so uh, we'll we'll keep cheering uh, any any of them on who are educating our kids on financial wellness. Um, and trust me, yeah. I will be setting tasks on on both of them to sit there, keep quiet, do a homework, and do a music <laughs> practice for both of them. So uh, they'll be active users. Trust me, Leila. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a it's a strict household you oh, run yeah. there, but uh, I, to I need to. Uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> keep keep everybody in shape it really is it's uh i mean it's it's going to be interesting i, I think um 
I honestly think if I was if I was the CEO of a, a high street bank right now, this would probably want be one of the things I'd be most concerned about because actually it's the it's not just the generation now. I mean, particularly in banks where we've seen uh, quite significant turnover of uh, you know senior leadership. You know, actually, you know, at uh, you know somewhere like NatWest, actually new CEO in. You know, you're playing the long game. You're not thinking about next year's you know next two three years and then it's retirement. It's like I'm in this job for a while so actually if um, somebody like revolute can actually start tapping into major scale for the next generation of, of retail current accounts then that would be a pretty major worry but i, I honestly I, I think the the, the big banks have got themselves to blame here um you know i i uh, i opened a midland bank account for a bloody clipboard you know like it's been it's been amazing how uh, little they have done to encourage you know, young customers to actually come to these and, and actually to your, to your point, Charlotte, to facilitate the, the parents to really have the right levels of controls over these accounts that actually makes it a win-win for both the, the kid and the parent. So, I mean, time time will tell on, on how successful Revolut is, but I honestly don't think this will be the, the last one of these that we see. I think, you know, definitely if um, if Starling and Monzo and, and the other players in this space don't have these in the works, I'll be very, very, very surprised. So, OK, moving on. Uh, the last story that we have for you this week is one that was over on Finextra. So this is that Nationwide is to open early for vulnerable customers. Um, so the bank will start to operate an hour early to serve elderly customers and those vulnerable to coronavirus. We're back to the virus again. Uh, 100 branches will open 8 a.m. rather than 9 a.m. If that's successful, programs could then spread to all 650 nationwide branches. Uh, on the other hand, Santander is updating its telephone and digital support inquiries to related to COVID-19. So, um, I mean, this is an interesting one because... Um, I think this sort of makes sense in the context of you stand back and try and figure out what you can do to help, right? Um, but equally, we've got a bunch of vulnerable customers that are basically being told not to leave your property in any way, shape or form. So an hour <clears throat> to deal with more, a bunch of elderly customers who would be coming or vulnerable customers from, you know, any particular type of, um, you know, previous sort of health impediment. I'm not sure it seems very tokenistic is is kind of the the bush i'm sort of beating around really um what, what do you think alex yeah I, I would have to agree with you i think i'm sure everyone in this call has had uh, a million emails this week from every brand you've ever subscribed to the newsletter them letting you know exactly what they're doing for covid19 um and some attempts have been amazing uh, and some attempts have been less thought through I'm sorry to say, but I think this is probably in the less thought through kind of category. I think this is a nice idea and it sounds right on the surface, but you're absolutely right. Like the idea of elderly customers leaving their houses early uh, to get to the bank just doesn't feel quite right. Um, and also all these social measures um, are a bit scary. They kind of feel like the beginning of The Handmaid's Tale kind of world um so i'm trying to yeah i'm trying to see the positivity and i think it is a great attempt but i'm a bit worried at the prospect of of kind of time slots for different people and the idea of trying to promote elderly people to come out of their houses early it doesn't sit quite right with me i'm afraid yeah i mean i i, I sort of i sort of say it 
I mean, they're they're trying to do their best, which we should we should sort of reward, right? So they like the they if you only have one lever to pull, which is like your opening times to kind of support people, they're pulling it. So we we should sort of say like, well done for trying something, but I'm not sure it's necessarily going to have the impact that um, that it could do. What, what do you think, Jason? Well, I mean, I've done a fair amount of work with Nationwide, and you know, I, I can't think of a of a um, of a big bank of a big you know, well, they're not a bank, but a big incumbent who are more uh, focused on their members. You know, remember, they're a membership organization. They're not driven by share price. They are driven by a a real sort of deep-seated feeling for what's good for their members. Um, So I do think this is, you know, is done with the best intention. But it's not only financial services. I mean, you know, I live in the middle of England in a, you know, on the edge of a small town. Tesco's is opening early in order to allow uh, pensioners to come in and do their shopping. So there's almost now this, beyond financial services, a time slot where hopefully there will be less people about in order for you know people who need to get out to be able to go and do the thing that they need. And, and Tesco's have been nice to say, you know, to just ask other people to bear that in mind and just to stay away while, you know, these people are, you know, are, are there and doing it. Um, it's a really difficult one because, like, do you want vulnerable people to start, you know, getting together and spreading it within sort of, you know, that environment? Like, how much does it really protect them? Hopefully a little. But, um, you know, when you've got little old deers talking to other little old deers, you know, they haven't seen for a while. I don't know. There's something that worries me a little bit about that. And, um, you know, uh, um, uh, and I think that that actually this move towards communities looking after people who are at risk that we've seen a lot of this week as well lots of you know checking on neighbors talking through windows seeing if there's stuff i can fetch from you know the supermarket or you know can i get you a newspaper can i do something for you that i think is a much nicer and more effective solution than trying to say well keep doing the things that you normally do but we'll try and you know provide a time slot where you know only a certain certain groups can go and can go and do stuff yeah i mean look it's it this is uh, i if any of us knew what we could do to make this better for anybody i think that's a i mean as as social media always does i think um everybody starts getting up on their high horse pretty uh, pretty quickly don't they so i mean i i reminded everybody earlier on that um empathy doesn't uh, doesn't solve this people we actually have to do things so uh, there's a lot of people out there that i think are um sort of seeing this as an opportunity to 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 sort of be holier than thou type thing so well done for nationwide for actually taking some steps and doing something whether it will have the impact that they wanted it to i'm i'm not really sure but um i guess only time would tell and uh, i mean unfortunately time is probably the thing that we've uh, run out of this week so next week we will come back and i mean so long as everything is still ticking around and the world is still spinning then uh, fintech insider will go on at that point so that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to our guests where can people find out more about you and your company alex yep so if you go to the uh apple app store or to google play you can download chip and uh, get saving um people need it now more than ever um or you can follow me on twitter at act latham very good uh leila where can people find out more about you and your company 
Um, so you can go to our website, uh, which is techpassport.io. We're launching next week. And for the first 50 suppliers that join up, um, we're offering it for free. So I think back to Alex's point, I think now is a time when we need to pull together and support each other and support small companies. So we've always had a big emphasis on how we can help um, support SMEs. And this is uh, the best time, really. So um, launching next week, come and join us. Very good. Charlotte, it's going to be a busy time over the next couple of weeks. Uh, where can people find out more about all the things that you're doing? Um, we're putting most of it through through social media. So at Infin, I-N-N-F-I-N. Um, my own Twitter handle is at C Crosswell. We are very interested in anyone from the fintech community who can help during this process. You look at the role, help vulnerable customers, help SMEs, do get in contact with that. You'll be able to reach us through those. Very, very good. Uh, Mr. Bates, where can people find out more about you? On Twitter, at Jason Bates. Very good. And as for me, uh, head over to LinkedIn, David Breer. Thank you very much for listening this week. If you've liked what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. I mean, you've got loads of time on your hands lately, haven't you? You're just sat at home. So uh, please leave us a review. It really helps us out. All right. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech who isn't listening to this, pass along the podcast, see what they say. If you have any suggestions or feedback, you can find us on pretty much every social media at this point, or you can email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening this week, guys. Speak to you soon.